First Peter. First Peter. I have 10 minutes. Glory to God. I don't know how I'm going to do that. Praise the Lord. It's all right. Glory to God. Hallelujah. The book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. And we will begin reading in verse 10. Continuing on in our series in 1 Peter. 1 Peter, chapter 1. Begin reading in verse 10. When you got it, say so. The word of the Lord says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and search carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. I would say that just on the last line of that scripture that what we're talking about is very important. If you think about that, it says that the things that Peter is talking about here, angels desire to look into this. Now, I don't know, I, I don't know if you understand why that's so important. I'm going to touch this at the end of the message, but I want to point this out to you. Angels stand in the presence of a holy and glorious God all day, all night. They are continuously before the most glorious and magnificent sight that you and I could ever hope to look upon. And they desire to look into the things that God is doing in this earth. They desire to look into the things. The things that God is doing here is, it are so amazing that angels desire to look into them. Let us pray together. Father, we honor you tonight and we thank you so greatly for your presence. We thank you so greatly for being with us this evening. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that even as you have graced us by touching our hearts, that you would continue to move in our midst and that you would illuminate our hearts through your word, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit says to your church. Father God, for my brothers and sisters that are part of this body, I pray that we would continue to grow in this grace and the knowledge of who you are. Father God, for those that are visiting with us, I pray that you would touch their lives today, that you would instruct their hearts today from your word, Father God. And Lord, that all of us would leave this place knowing greater things about you. Father, we thank you. And we give you all praise and glory. In Jesus' mighty name, someone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Now tonight, I will definitely speak for more than 10 minutes. Hallelujah. It's a good thing it's a Friday night. Hallelujah. Holiday weekend. You could sleep in tomorrow, maybe. I don't know what your plans are tomorrow. Hallelujah. But this evening, I got a lot, a lot, a lot of scriptures to go over. Amen. When I say a lot, like my daughter said, Daddy, what scriptures do you have to go over? And I gave her all of them. She's like, man, you got a lot of scriptures. So I know I got a lot of scriptures tonight, and I'm going to ask you to just stick with me, glory to God, because there is a lot that I would like to say regarding this particular topic. And the topic that I want to speak on this evening is entitled, The Inspiration of Scripture. 
the inspiration of Scripture. As we're going through the book of 1 Peter, we want to grasp the concepts that Peter is trying to communicate and realize how important it is for us to understand these things. And he starts off in verse 10 by saying, of this salvation... And we'll just pause there for a moment. Of this salvation, we talked about last week what we rejoice in. That while we are going through hardship, that while we're going through difficulty, that even though now we are tested and we're going through hardship and we're going through trial, different things, different situations, some of us being persecuted because of our faith, some of us being just going through difficulty in area of finances and areas of our marriage and relationship with our children, some of us going through physical illness and different things of that nature as as we are being tested, as we are being tried, as we are suffering in this time, the Bible instructs us that our response to those things is to rejoice. It is not that we ignore what we're facing, but it is that we respond with rejoicing because we may not be able to rejoice in the situation, but we are able to rejoice through the situation. Because we rejoice not in this temporal world, but in the eternal realities that God has already accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. And those things are bound up in this wonderful word, and that is this world, this word of this salvation. As a Christian, you and I have been given the greatest gift known to man. Let me say that again. You and I, as Christians, have been given the greatest gift known to man. We don't, you see, in the church day, in, in the church nowadays, we don't get excited about what we should get excited about. And I, I, Lord, thank you for your enthusiasm. Hallelujah. We don't get excited about the things we should get excited about. When we talk about salvation, it's almost like, okay, we're talking about salvation. Hold on a second. Do you really get what we're talking about when we talk about salvation? Do we really understand? I mean, I don't know about you, but I was pretty lost. I know, I know some of y'all were just good, all right, and you, like, think you just need Jesus just to get into heaven. Uh-huh. That, that's how some of y'all feel. Well, I never really did that much bad stuff, but I couldn't get to heaven on my own. I just needed to get in there. That wasn't me. So if that's you, mm-hmm, I have to wonder if you really got a way into heaven. Hello. You got to come to some realizations that you ain't that good. Hello. If you were good enough, Jesus wouldn't have to come. You could have done it for all of us. Mm-hmm. Salvation, the greatest gift. Why is this? When I talk about being a Christian, and I say this, it is because no other religion can offer this. There is no other religion on the planet that can offer you salvation. There is no other religion on the planet that says there's a guarantee. Some religions say, you know, you do good enough, you'll be reincarnated in the next life, and you'll deal with your good karma, bad karma. That's not a guarantee. Hello? Because how do you know what you're going to be reincarnated? Well, you try to make sure that your good works outdo your bad works. Hello? Other religions, they teach you the same thing. How, how do you know? How do you know? I've heard so many testimonies of people that have spoken to Muslims. How do you know you've done enough good stuff in order to get into heaven? You don't. That is a horrible way to live. Me as a Christian, I'm not dependent on Jason. I'm depending on Jesus. How do I know I'm going to heaven? Because of what Jesus did on the cross. How am I sure of that? Because the word of God continues to encourage me and show me he did it. He completed it. He's going to bring it to completion. All I got to do is stay connected to him and it's all good. That's what I know. No other religion can boast that. 
No other belief system can produce this. You can do all of the good works you want to do. You can do, you know, I, I say it all the time. You can be a do-gooder. Hello. Right? You can be a do-gooder all your life. You can do all good kind of stuff. You can be a humanitarian. You could be saving trees and oceans and all kinds. You could be the greatest recycler on planet Earth. Hello. Because some of us think that being like that makes us godly. It's called the social gospel. We get caught up. Well, we got to do this. We got to go and have humanitarian efforts. But we don't care about sharing the gospel. Listen, you need to make sure that in the midst of all of your humanitarian efforts, because, you know, there ain't nothing wrong with being a humanitarian effort type person. Hello. But in the midst of all of that, you need to make sure you're sharing Jesus with folks. Because what does it do to build a person a house, but don't ever bring them to Jesus? What does it do to feed a person but never show them the one who, who died on the cross? What is that? It, it is worthless. You did a good thing for them, but you're going to let them live nice and comfortable and go straight to hell. That's the truth. And so I'm not telling you not to be good. What I'm telling you is that you can, you, you can do all the good stuff that you want to do, and that doesn't guarantee you this salvation. Some of us feel, and I say this again and again, and I will continue to repeat this, some of us are just moralists, and we just feel like, man, I got this list of things that I got to do, and if I do them, I feel good enough about myself. Listen, this is, about, this is not about feeling good enough about me. This is about feeling good about Jesus. This is not about feeling good about all the good stuff I do. This is about me feeling good about what he did for me. That's what this is about. No other person, I say this, can, can, on the planet, whoever lived, whoever will live, and who is living right now can offer or is worthy of this gift. None of us. This gift of salvation. And the Bible says, if you continue on in verse 10, it says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. What does God do? God inspired the writing of Scripture through the prophets in the Old Testament and through the apostles in the New Testament to tell us about what? What were they trying to tell us about? Were they trying to give us 10 ways to a better life? Was that what they were trying to do? Were they trying to show us some kind of formula just to have a good marriage, some kind of formula just to have solid finances, just some kind of formula in order to raise your kids right? Is that all that these people were trying to communicate? No. The scripture says that what they were doing is they were talking to us about Jesus. When you look at the full counsel of God in the scriptures, this is what it does. It talks to us about Jesus, the salvation that was to come through him, the consequences of man's rebellion against the holy God. We read in here about the sufferings that Christ would go through and the rewards of those who bow in repentance and faith before him, the glory that is to come. That is the full counsel of God. That is the reason why we get excited in worship. It is not because of a feeling that we have. It is because of a, of a faith that is living inside of us. What, to what, 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 what the question or the most important thing for us to ask ourselves today is, have I been inspired by the scriptures? That's the most important question for you to ask yourself today. If you're sitting here, have you been inspired by the scriptures? I'll put it another way. What is your relationship to the Bible? Is it something that sits on a desk somewhere? Maybe open to Psalm 23 because the Lord is your shepherd. You know, you know how it goes? Some folks have these huge Bibles. You walk into on a pedestal, open to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Uh-huh. 
Is that your relationship with the Bible? The reason why this becomes so, such an important question is because it answers another under, underlying question. Do I really believe the scriptures? See, my relationship to the Bible, my relationship and the way that I treat scripture really says, do I really believe what the Bible says? If the Bible is just some kind of decoration in my home, or maybe for some of you because, you know, you want to make sure when you come to church you have your Bible, right? So you go ahead and you put it in your car. It may be some kind of thing in your vehicle. Mm -hmm. For some of us. Some of us have like three Bibles. We have our car Bible. We have our Bible in our room. And then we have our other Bible, you know, the one that we left in church that we come to every week because we find, oh, there it is. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, Lord, let me get this towel over here. All right, praise the Lord Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves this question. So moving on, say this with me. I have one really big point, and it's long, so repeat this with me. The prophets were inspired with direct revelation from God regarding Jesus, the author and finisher of our salvation. The purpose was for our transformation and inspiration. The prophets who so diligently searched out the scriptures, they were there digging up, looking in what the word of God was communicating. And God was speaking to them. Vodi Bakum, he said something. I listened to a message that he preached. And in this message, he says something. And you can write this down. The book of Genesis, chapter 3 and verse 15. Where God is speaking, it is after the fall. God is speaking to Adam and Eve. He's speaking to the serpent. He's communicating this curse. And he says that he is going to put enmity between the serpent, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the man. And he goes on and he talks about how the seed of the woman was going to crush the head, right, of the serpent. And that the serpent was going to bruise his heel. That's what the scriptures teach. And what Vodibachum says is something that I agree with wholeheartedly. All of the counsel of scripture is the unfolding of that prophecy being fulfilled everything in your bible is about that scripture that is the first proclamation of the gospel that is the first time that the gospel is communicated and so what god is doing in in genesis chapter 3 is he chapter 3 and verse 15 is he communicates the gospel and what he does after that is he demonstrates his ability and his desire to save lost humanity and destroy the powers of satan by the promised seed jesus who would crush the head of the serpent satan all of scripture is about that. And these prophets that prophesied after that time, the entire first five books of the Bible written by Moses. And so Moses is communicating these things. And there are, and there, there are pictures in the Old Testament. And we'll look at those of, of foreshadowing who Jesus is. All for what? So we can get a focus and a glimpse of who the Savior that is needed. To point us unto him. All of scripture is the unfolding of, the, of these prophecies. The Old Testament prophets got this divine revelation. And what they did was there were some prophets who were those who prophesied. And you don't necessarily have, like, for example, you don't have a book of Elijah, right? You don't have a book of Elisha. These were prophets that were there. They didn't write books. They, they prophesied. They spoke forth the word of God. We don't have those. But then there were other prophets that were there that they prophesied in their day. They spoke forth. When you prophesy, you speak under the inspiration of God, divine revelation from God. They get this revelation and they communicate it verbally and they also communicate it by writing. 
And these prophets afterward, you'll notice something that happens in, in the book of Daniel. Daniel is there in the midst of Babylon. And what he's doing is he begins to, he begins to study the prophecies of Jeremiah. And he begins to understand something through those prophecies. He said, wait a second, this 70-year time period is going to come to an end. And I need to know, God, what we need to do. And then that's when we get the revelation of Daniel's 70 weeks. And he has this great revelation from God. Because of what? Because he was diligently searching the scriptures to find out what was going to happen next he was looking at the bible to find out what was going to happen and so god gives these these prophets this divine inspiration this divine revelation they don't just get up and just say well you know i think this is what's going to happen that's not what they do god speaks to them directly he gives them a divine message and says these things are going to happen this is what is going to occur these are these are the times in which these things are going to happen the reason why these prophets began to study and search out so diligently is because God did not give them a specific hour, but he gave them signs that would indicate the time and the seasons that these prophecies would be fulfilled. He doesn't tell them, March 23rd, 19 whatever, this is going to happen. He didn't say, you know, you know, how, you, know, you know how they have billboards up like that, right? Jesus was coming on such and such a day. Crazy. What's even crazier is that it was the second time that this person did that. I would, I would have been good enough the first time Jesus didn't show up. I wouldn't try to figure it out again. Hello. Just be like, all right, good. I messed up. I don't want to be a fool twice. Hello. I think what's even crazier than that is he had followers. Anyway, glory to God. I'll leave that alone. Some folks are crazy in the wrong way. When you hear that, that crazy is not a good crazy. Hello. And so we find here. They didn't have a specific time. They didn't know, okay, well, it's going to be, you know, at one, you know, this, but none of that stuff. They didn't, they didn't know that. But they were given these certain instructions. And so because it's a Friday night, I figure it's a good time to do this. There are 109 prophecies. Y'all are excited about that, huh? You're like 109. Glory to God. It's going to take more than 10 minutes, don't you think? We're not going to go over all 109, glory to God. We're just going to go over, over a few of them. I, I, I just want to point out a few of these prophecies that were there because it's important. Listen to me. It's very, very important that we get the scriptures and that we care about them. And some of us sit in here and we know that we're saved or we feel like we're saved or we think that we're saved. And that's all good. But do we know the signs? Do we know why we believe the Bible? When people come and talk to you, we're supposed to be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. So if we sat down right now and we just paused and I just said, okay, I want you guys to take 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30. I'll give you an hour. And you can sit down by yourself with your Bible. You get no concordance. See, everybody's just like, oh, wait a second, no concordance. You get no concordance, right? All you can do is use your Bible. How many of us would really be able to go in there and, and I ask the question, now show me some of the Old Testament prophecies that prove that Jesus was Messiah. How many of us would be able to come out with at least four, five, six? It would be tough. Oh, I'm sorry, you can't Google either, so you got to turn your phone off. I know you have somebody, well, I don't need a concordance. I got Google. No, you don't. How many of us would be able to do that? 
And I don't say that to be insulting. I simply say it because a lot of times we are laxed in our pursuit of God and his word. We are, we're not like these prophets who are diligently seeking the word of God, diligently looking in the scriptures, trying to find answers from the Lord. And so we're going to look at a few of these prophecies. I'm going to give you the first one. It is in the book of Isaiah. You can write this down. They should be coming up. It is in the book of Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. You all should know this one. This is a really good one. This is the first sign. This is sign number one. Isaiah, do we got it? Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Where's my daughter? Somebody help him out. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. It's all, all the scriptures are already there under easy worship. And so Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, it speaks to us. And I'll turn there right now and we'll just read it together. You can turn there if you want. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Sign number one, this is the first sign, very important sign, I think. The first sign is that the virgin will be with child. That's something different, don't you think? That's a good sign. Someone who is not married, someone who has never known someone sexually, someone who people know. Okay, now, listen, a lot of folks, they were like, you know what, Mary and Joseph, they were sleeping together. A lot of people think that. Joseph didn't think that, though. Hello. Joseph was like, you know what, I'm going to put this woman away. I love her, but, man, she did me wrong. She's pregnant, right? And what does God do? God visits Joseph in a dream, and he says, Joseph, that's me. So don't be mad. She didn't do anything wrong. She's right. Joseph was like, yes. <laughs> yes. She's not bad. She's not out there, you know, in our days. She ain't tricking. Hello. She ain't doing her own thing, right? She's faithful, right? Hmm. She's doing, she's, she, she's right. So the first, the first sign, the first scripture, I'm just giving, see here, you know why I want to give you these scriptures? This is why I want to give you these scriptures. Because when you have a conversation with someone, it's cool to say to them that your Bible is like two-thirds prophecy or one-third prophecy, two-thirds of that one-third have already come to pass. But can you point someone directly to a prophecy that has come to pass? Most of us can't. Most of us would have to call someone up or Google or something like that to be able to find those prophecies. So if you're taking notes, and I hope that you are, or if not, I mean, open up your Bible. You don't have to do that. And if you're on your phone, you know, go to your notes section. Write it down. Sign number one, the virgin will be with child, and she will call him Emmanuel, God with us. First sign. Second sign. Now, wait. Before we move on to the second sign, I want you to realize when Isaiah was written. Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus came. 700 years prior to Jesus coming, Isaiah wrote this prophecy, penned this prophecy. The second sign that we see is in the book of Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2. Here we go. It says, but thou, Bethlehem, Ephrath, though thou, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. I didn't realize I was in the King James, glory to God. I feel like I'm like absolutely unintelligent because that was crazy right there. But anyway, glory to God. I got nervous. I'm like, thou and though and whoa, ho, oh, glory to God. That was crazy. Can, can, can we get a different translation of that? Praise the Lord Jesus. <laughs> Sign number one, virgin. There's nothing wrong with the King James Version. I just don't read it, okay? Some of y'all were like, what is that? That's like pig Latin up there. No, that's the, that, that's the official King James, all right? But look what he says. But thou, 
Bethlehem. Though thou, though thou be little among the thousands, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is, to be ruler in Israel. He says the second sign. Again, Micah is written 700 years again before Christ. And he gives us the second sign that we see throughout the Bible, I mean throughout the, the Gospels. It is that born to a virgin, where was he born? Bethlehem. So we know that this scripture is fulfilled in Jesus. Born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. So now we have one sign, we have two signs. The third sign that we'll look at is in the book of Malachi, chapter 3 and verse 1. The book of Malachi, chapter 3 and verse 1, is 400 years before Christ. So Isaiah, Micah, they were contemporaries. They were prophets around the same time. But Malachi, 300 years later, he prophesies and he says this. He says, Behold, glory to God, we're going to get there. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. And so the third sign that he gives us is he says that there will be a messenger. Who's the messenger? Who's the messenger to come before Jesus? There you go. John the Baptist, glory to God. Born to a virgin, born in Bethlehem, and then there is someone who is going to come as a herald. Back in the days, you know, or even I imagine this probably still happens, they blow a trumpet and they say the king is coming. They communicate who it is. I know you guys have seen some of those older movies and they have different, like a knight is going to come up and there is a herald that comes before and they say, this is so-and-so from so-and-so and he's going to do this and that and all. And so it was the same exact situation. The king of kings, lord of lords, comes to the earth and there is one who is preparing the way and he is communicating and he's saying to them there is a messenger so the third sign you'll see is there's going to be a messenger he says and he shall prepare the way before me and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple here's another sign that says that Jesus already came in Jerusalem today there is no temple why is that important? because in order for Messiah to come he's got to come to the temple this is important for us to get because if there is no temple, he cannot come right now. If there is no temple for him to come to, so what does that tell us? That tells us he already came. We know that in 70 A.D. is when the temple was destroyed, right? And so what we realize is that here we have two different signs. One of them is that this messenger will go. The other one is that he's going to come to the temple suddenly. This is what our Bible teaches us about Jesus coming. Fourth sign that we'll give here is in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 through 6. Again, Isaiah writes 700 years before Christ. And Isaiah says, Then shall the lame man leap as, as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and the streams in the desert. And so what Isaiah is communicating in the top of this prophecy, then shall the lame man leap as an heart. So he's going to leap and he's going to jump like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. So did we see miracles? This is the fourth sign, is that when Messiah comes, he's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He is going to have someone who is heralding his coming, who is communicating and setting the stage for him to come. And then he is also going to work miracles. 
He is going to work miracles. This is the reason why these people diligently studied the scriptures because they were looking for what manner of time. When is Messiah going to come? When is this salvation going to be revealed? The fifth sign that we see is found in the book of Zechariah, verses, um, chapter 11, verses 12 through 13. The book of Zechariah, chapter 11, verse, uh, verses 12 through 13. Zechariah, 500 years before Christ. And he, and, and he talks about this. He says, and I said unto them, if you think good, give me my price. And if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. Does it sound familiar? So this next sign is who? It's about Judas. It's about Jesus being betrayed. It's about him being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. It goes on in the next part of the verse to talk about the potter's field and about the 30 pieces of silver being thrown in the temple. And you know what Judas did. Judas went, betrays Jesus. Then he comes back to, these, to the leaders and stuff. And he says, listen, I betrayed innocent blood. What does he do with the 30 pieces of silver? He throws them in the temple. 500 years before this happens, Zechariah prophesies this. So he gives us another sign. The sixth sign that we'll look at. Again, this sign is a 1,000 years before Christ. It's in the book of Psalm, chapter 22 and verse 16. And this is what it says. It says, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now, this is not, now I want you to get this. This prophecy is not only a thousand years old, but they had not yet, when this was prophesied, when the psalmist was writing this, they had not yet invented crucifixion. That death wasn't even invented yet. So not only did he prophesy something a thousand years earlier, it was like a hundred years before crucifixion even existed that God goes on ahead and says, I'm going to let you know he's going to die in a death that we don't even know anything about yet. Is God not amazing? He communicates these things to us. And all of these things came to pass. And the last witness that we'll look at, and I'm going to ask you to turn there. You should probably still be in Isaiah. We're going to turn to Isaiah 53 together. And Isaiah 52 and 53, very messianic in their, in their communication. Whenever we do communion, we usually read Isaiah 53, por portions of it. And so we're going to read Isaiah 53. We're going to begin in verse 6 and go to verse 11. And when you got it, say amen. And it says like this, it says, And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is, he laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He, is, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. This again, communicating how Jesus was when he was there before Pilate, his accusers before him. Pilate is like, are you not going to respond? He's like, no, I don't have anything to say. The authority you have is because God has given it to you. I have nothing to communicate. I'm not going to rebuttal. I'm not going to complain. I'm going to go ahead and experience this death. It says, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked. He hung on a cross between two thieves, but with the rich at death. He was buried in a rich man's grave. Amen. Hallelujah. Because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him 
He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. What we see here in this last sign of these prophecies that are spoken about concerning Jesus is we see the way that he is going to be killed. We see the way that he's going to die. In the last portion of that scripture in verse 11, it says he shall see the labor of his soul. And in another translation, the way that it says is from the labor of his soul, he shall see light. And so what this points to is it points to not only his death, not only the way he was crucified between the wicked, not only the fact that he was was laid in the tomb of a rich man, but also that he would experience the resurrection and see the light of life. This is what the Bible says. And mind you, we could go through like 102 more prophecies, but I won't do that. We'll stop right here. And here's the question. Just looking at these scriptures here, who else has that resume? Who else? Who else has that resume? Who else can boast those things? Who else can communicate those things? Who else? No one else fulfilled any of those prophecies. And so the prophets that, Paul, that Peter is referring to, those prophets, they diligently studied the scriptures. Turn back to 1 Peter with me, chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10, it says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. These prophets looked at these scriptures. The Old Testament prophecies, they were about the salvation in our days. When we read the Bible, what is the Bible really about? It is about Jesus. It is about our salvation. It is about the grace of God that was going to be revealed later on. The grace of God that is demonstrated throughout the scriptures showing how God preserves this seed in order to do what? To deliver us from the powers of darkness. And Peter's saying, look, you know why you rejoice? You rejoice because of this. You rejoice because this revelation has been given to you. What is the Bible really about? It's about Jesus. When we look at the Bible, and I, and I say this, and I, and I take this from Mark Driscoll, he says that a lot of people, they look at the Bible, and they see the Bible as a story of a bunch of good people and bad people. And so what we do is we read our Bible and we say, okay, I'm going to do the things that all the good people do and I'm going to be all right. And the things that bad people do, don't do them. It's not true. You know what your Bible is about? It is about a bunch of bad people who need a Savior and one good person. That is Jesus. Oh, glory to God. Because all those good people, guess what? None of them saved you. All those good people, none of them could save you. The best folks, look at Noah. The Bible says Noah was perfect in his day, Bishop, because I know, you know, I got some scholars there, there, you know, their wheels are running. Wait, what, what about Noah? He was perfect. What did Noah do? After the flood, first thing he does, gets drunk, get butt naked. Good guy. Great. Pastor Robert got up here the other day. He was talking about Job. He said Job had the wrong attitude, but God said he was perfect in his day, wasn't he? 
And yet he still had the wrong attitude. God questioned him and said, hold on a second. Where were you when I? Did you give me counsel about how to do things? No. And we thank God for, you know, his humility. He humbled himself. <laughs> Glory to God. It's a good example. doesn't make him good enough to save us. The Bible is about people who need salvation. The reason why I love the Bible is because I can look at people and I can say, man, there's still hope for me. Hallelujah. I know y'all perfect, glory to God. But for me, when I read the Bible and I, and, and I see I, I, God like, you know, he's Moses, this great, wonderful God. Dude strikes a rock, can't even go through the problem. That would be the most horrible ministry on the planet. Moses walked around. It would be like you, it would be like me leading you for 40 years around and around and around and around. And then God says, okay, now you go die on the mountain. You're not getting in there. Hallelujah. Crazy. No one is perfect. No one is good enough. So this is what the prophets prophesied about. This is what they communicated about. Within these prophecies that we talked about, I'll give you a couple of more things that, uh, about Jesus. Remember, there's just one point that I have today, so I got all this stuff under this one point. Within the prophecies about Jesus, we have these appearances of Christ. Christophanies in the scripture, theophanies where Christ appears, Christ shows up. As Pastor Robert teaches in our, in our mentoring program, he talks about those things, the angel of the Lord. And he speaks about this particular angel because this one is special. This one is the one that brings these revelation. But when you look throughout the Old Testament as well, you have these types and you have these shadows. And what we find is that Jesus has, he, he, we, we see in, in a lot of these Old Testament people in these situations, we see these, these, these prophecies or these purposes of Jesus being manifested. I'll give you some examples. The first one we'll talk about is Adam. How do we compare Jesus and Adam? Jesus was the second Adam, right? Adam, he's obviously the first Adam. Hello. So Adam comes into, you know, history by God's grace, comes into the earth, and he lives, he lives on this earth, fails in the garden, he dies. What does Jesus do? Adam, Jesus is the second Adam who passes his test in the garden, not failing like Adam did. What does Jesus do? Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's there, and he's crying out, and we'll talk about that a little bit more when I deal with Jacob and how he compares. But the point of the matter is that in a, in a garden is where that battle was lost, where Adam decided that he was going to do his own thing. And rather than obey what God said, he would obey what his wife said and ultimately obey what the serpent communicated. And Jesus in the garden with agony of soul, he obeyed the will of the Father and conquered for us. And that way we can look at him as a second. Adam who brings us life Jesus is the better Abel because remember Abel remember Cain and Abel the Bible shows us that Abel was killed by his brother his blood cried out to God and was saying he murdered me the blood of Jesus doesn't cry out he murdered me the blood of Jesus cries out forgive them oh glory to God the blood of Jesus cries out, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He is the better Abel. Jesus, just like Abraham, what did Abraham have to do? He had to leave his father's house. What does Jesus do? He leaves the abode of heaven. He leaves the glory of heaven to come down and put on what? To put on humanity, to put on flesh so we can have salvation. Leaves his, father house, his father's house the same way that Abraham does. Jesus is like Isaac. What does Isaac do? Isaac climbs up a mountain with his father carrying the wood for the sacrifice and is ready to be killed by his father. He is saved. 
saved because God communicates and says, don't kill your son. I was testing your faith. But then there's a lamb caught up in this thicket. And so we see Jesus, who was the substitutionary death. But Isaac is the son, the, 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 the promised chosen son that God has. And Jesus is a better Isaac because he doesn't go to the cross and renege, but he goes on the cross and dies. He goes to the cross and is sacrificed. And he said it himself, the authority you have, because my father gave it to you. We just read in Isaiah, it was the father's pleasure to bruise him. The father puts him to death. Jesus is like Jacob. What did Jacob do? Jacob wrestles with God. He wrestles with the angel of the Lord. He receives this blessing. Jesus is a better Jacob. Why? Because he not only wrestles with the, with, the, with the agony of the cross and cries out to the Father all of those times, but he doesn't cry out to him those three times solely for himself, but he cries out to him for our deliverance because if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, we don't get salvation. He didn't just cry, Father, bless me. He said, God, strengthen me so I can bring blessing. He's a better Jacob. Jesus is a better Joseph. Y'all know the story of Joseph. Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, going to be killed by them, gets sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt years and years later, and he's there. He ends up being elevated to the right hand of the king, given authority, dominion, and power. And what happens? His brothers who betrayed him come to him. They don't even recognize him. And he has all the right to go on ahead and say, you know what, kill him. They deserve death. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? He uses his authority to extend forgiveness, to bring deliverance. And God uses him to preserve the seed that was going to come. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, extending us forgiveness, mercy. We are undeserving. We are the betrayers. There's a song on ZA.3, and it says, I am Judas Iscariot, and, and it goes through all of these things, but you love me anyway. That song, listen, you may not like that style of music, but that song is powerful. You love me anyway. We can blame Judas. We can talk about the people who crucified him. We can talk about the religious Pharisees, but we are the ones who are guilty of his blood. And he, like Joseph, doesn't bring the hammer of judgment, but he shows the hand of grace. Jesus is the better Moses, and that he gives us the new covenant. He is the mediator of the new covenant, and he is the intercessor, the same way that Moses prayed for the children of Israel and for God's forgiveness, so Jesus prays for our forgiveness, for our deliverance, and he mediates the new covenant in his blood. Jesus is like Job, who was innocent and was tempted by the enemy to dishonor God. When Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, he was tempted. If you are the son of God, basically Satan was saying, just do what I'm asking you to do and dishonor your father in heaven. He goes and he tells the disciple about the sufferings he's going to go through. And Peter jumps up after saying, you are the son of God. You are the Christ. Then Peter does what? He starts, he pulls Jesus to the side and starts rebuking him. And what does Jesus do? He turns around and says, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because the devil came and again gives him an opportunity to say, you know what? I'm not going to go that route. These are the things that happen. And you know what, the same way that Job, you know, you, you ever read the story of Job and you see his friends that come to him, and his friends are absolutely horrible. You don't want friends like this when you're going through hardship. 
Because they come to you and they tell you, you're a sinner, you need God, you did something wrong. You, you, what, what's wrong with you, man? You must have done something. They're not there to pray for you, they're there to condemn you. Because they've been looking at you all this time, you got all this good stuff going on, and they just hating, hello. Those are the kind of friends he had. Were Jesus' friends any better? All of them left him alone. Let him say, Peter, I'll die for you. Jesus is over there getting accused and all that stuff. Oh, you were with him. Mm-mm. No, I wasn't. Yeah, you were. You. Mm-mm, not me. So, man, your, your speech betrays you. He starts cursing. Let me change my speech. That's what, he, that's what the Bible says. He called curses down from heaven. I do not know him. Those are the kind of friends Jesus had, just like Job. Jesus is like King David. I love this one. King David does what? He slays our giants for us. Jesus is better than the slayer of Goliath because he kills sin. He kills death. He kills all the powers and principalities and works of darkness. He is the king of kings that comes to conquer for us. That is who our Jesus is. And the last one that I'll say is he is one that is greater than Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. Jesus was in the tomb dead. See, Jonah wasn't dead. They threw him in the water. Fish swallowed him. He was good to go. Jesus brutally murdered on the cross. There was no life in him. When they came to break his legs, they said, this one is already dead. Took a spear, shoved it in his side. Blood and water comes out, proving that he's dead. They put him in the grave. And he rises three days later. He rises three days later. That's why these prophets were so excited about these scriptures. All scripture, it's all about Jesus, church, saving us and showing us his grace toward us. That includes the New Testament. I'm going to give you three scriptures that are going to prove that the New Testament is as well inspired. And it is the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17, where it speaks of all scripture being inspired of God, divinely breathed in. You know that's my favorite word if you've been here for long enough. It is a word, theonoustos. It is divinely breathed in. That is what happens. God breathes in the scripture. He communicates to man. You continue on. And you read 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20, 20 through 21. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 through 21. And then 2 Peter chapter 3, 14 through 16. These are scriptures. We'll go over them later on, so I won't get into them right now. But these scriptures here give us the solid weight and understanding that New Testament is just as inspired as the Old Testament. The only difference is the New Testament writers, God is gracious because the Old Testament, he gives these prophets these things because they understand something. Look at verse 12. He says, to them it was revealed, not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So he communicates and he says that these prophets of old, they knew that what they were talking about, it wasn't about them. It wasn't about their days. It was about days to come. And then God is gracious and he gives us eyewitnesses. And Peter is one of them. And that's the reason why we're going through this book. Because Peter is one who saw the prophecies being fulfilled. He was an eyewitness. And here is the beauty of this. Whenever you think about Christianity, and this is what you got to get. You have all of these scriptures, right, that I gave you and that deal with the signs that showed that Jesus was the Messiah. That was promised. But you also need to understand that you have eyewitnesses who knew he was dead and now he's alive. Hallelujah. 
Yeah, that, that, that's a big thing. Because nowadays, we're in the age of people who think and people who are smart, right? And so they're always trying to figure out ways of the way miracles happen or the way things happen. And they'll be like, well, Jesus wasn't really dead. When he was in the grave, the cold air revived him. As though these people did not know that he was dead. Did they not read the Bible and see the soldiers who, listen, they had to know if you were dead. That was their job. They get killed if they brought you down and you weren't dead. Hello. They knew that the reason why they shoved the spear into his side. Because it shows that separation of blood and water coming out of him, proving that he's dead. And so we have not only the prophecies of the Old Testament, but we have the apostolic word, the eyewitnesses of the New Testament. And so that's the reason why we believe in the Bible. The title of the message is The Inspiration of Scripture. And the question is, have you been inspired by the Scriptures? Have you been inspired by the Scriptures? In closing, the last verse, the last portion of the verse in verse 12 Things which angels desire to look into. I already said this in the beginning before I started to preach this. But I want you to get this. These angels, they sit in the glorious presence of God. Now, I want you to think about this in in, in in the context of marriage for one moment. I have my wife. There are a bunch of pretty women on this earth, and there will be many more that will come and all that kind of stuff. But I want you to understand this. I have met a woman who has captivated my heart. She has captivated my heart in a way that no other woman has. That is the reason why she is my wife, and we will be together forever. Amen. Hallelujah. But here's the thing. I don't look at my wife and then go and turn on pornography because she doesn't satisfy me. My heart is captivated by her. I don't go and sit at the mall and look to see, okay, let me check her out and her out. I don't sit there and look on the Internet and try to, I don't do those things. Why? Because my heart is overwhelmed with her. Right? I don't say that's a brag. I'm just simply pointing. I'm trying to paint a picture for you. When you really meet that person that you really love, listen, you're not, your eyes ain't going to wander. Why? Because you found the one you were looking for. Let me say it again. When you really find that one... Your eyes are not going to wander because you found the one you were looking for. Hallelujah. The angels, they are in the glory and presence of God. There is nothing more impressive than seeing the God of glory totally unveiled. And your Bible says that the prophets of the Old Testament, that they began to search diligently the scriptures because they were so overwhelmed and so amazed at these prophecies and they wanted to find out what it was that was being communicated when this was going to happen. The Bible says that these angels... They desire to look in these things. These angels that are in the presence of God are overwhelmed by watching the salvation of Christians. Hallelujah. These angels are overwhelmed at the grace of God because you know what? We are created a little lower than the angels. Angels are in heaven. They're not sinning. They're not doing wrong. They had that opportunity. Satan was cast from heaven with the rest of those demons that fell with him, right? And so the rest of those angels up there, they're not like you and me. They're up there worshiping God. They're not sinning or anything like that. They're amazed when they see how God in his holiness and his splendor and his majesty actually reaches down through his son coming into, coming into history in order to be able to live his perfect life, die in our place. And he's, they're amazed at that. 
They are amazed that God would be so gracious to us. They're amazed. It's like they, you know, I heard one preacher say this. It's like they sit there, and when you close your Bible, they're like, no, don't close it. Leave it open. Leave it open so we can read some more. It's just a picture for you to see. That's how these angels are. Why do I point that out? Because let me ask you a question. How do you value your Bible? How? How do you look at the scriptures? How do you see the scriptures? Are you more concerned with feelings and emotions? Or, man, are you in love with your Bible? Are you in love with the Jesus that is revealed through the scriptures? Listen, I love worship. I meant what I said. I was, I was, I was overwhelmed in worship tonight. But I wasn't overwhelmed solely because the musicians or solely because the vocals or solely because of the anointing that was upon them. All of those things were great. But I became overwhelmed because I was reminded of the things that God has said in his word. Listen, worship becomes boring when it is not based on, filled with, empowered by the word of God. Because feelings will flee. And you know what will happen? You will go from one place to the next place looking for a greater experience. But when you find him, I say it like this. When you find him, you can be in the midst of a desert and still get the revelation that you need. And experience the presence of almighty God. Because of what? Because his word dwells richly in your heart. But when it doesn't. And this will offend some of you, and I apologize if it does, but I hope that it wakes you up. When you're not focused on the word, you'll focus on what everybody else is doing or not doing. Instead of you creating an atmosphere, you will wait for someone else to do it. Listen, I don't need anybody. When I stand in the back, I don't look at anyone. I close my eyes and worship. When I stand in the front, I close my eyes and worship. I don't. Why? Because I'm focusing on Jesus. That's what the word of God does for me. That is what the Word of God should do for us. So the question is this, how do you view the Bible? Do you view the Bible as fully inspired? Meaning that from Genesis to Revelation, it is all inspired by God. Do you view it like that? Do you see the Bible as being totally immutable? That it doesn't change, that it remains the same. Do you, do you see it like that? Do you see the Bible as absolutely inerrant? Meaning that it is never going to fail. Do you see it like that? Do you accept the Bible as the highest authority, the final authority? Do you accept the Bible as higher than you, or are you higher than the Bible? And do you choose what to believe and what to obey? Which one is it? Because I'll tell you what, there's some things in the Bible that are hard. They're hard to get. And our day and age, look, and I, and I say this with all sincerity and honesty, when, you, when, when we talk about these different topics, you talk about predestination, you talk about election, you talk about all of these big theological words, right? All of that stuff, none of that stuff is easy to understand. But what do I do? Do I sit there and just say, man, forget this, I'm never going to figure this out? Or do I continue to study until I know my God better? What do I do? When the Bible talks about this, I mean, this is, this is for, for some of y'all, you're like, this is crazy. The Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands. For some folks, what do you mean submit? That's crazy. How am I supposed to submit to him? That's what your Bible says to do. How about this one? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Crazy. How on earth? How is that possible? 
Jesus is the perfect man. And I'm supposed to love my wife like that? Yes. Some of those things are difficult. The question is, do you try to change the word or do you let the word convert you? What is it that you do? You try to twist the scriptures and make them fit your situation or do you conform to the word of God so you can live the way he's called you to live? Those are the questions. Because you know what we do most of the time, and I'll and I just be totally honest, most of the time we sit down, we read something that we don't necessarily agree with, something that we don't like, and then we get on the Google Express. Hello. And we try to find at least a couple of people who agree with us. A couple of people who, who, who believe the same way that we believe. And can I tell you something? On the Google Express, you will find them. You will find those folks who believe just like you. But just because someone believes like you doesn't make it right. Just because someone has made those decisions that are contrary to the Bible and it seems like it's okay in their life doesn't mean it's okay in their life. It is important for us to know where we stand with the Bible. Why? Because your view of Scripture it really defines your view of God and your passion for Christ. So I'll stand to our feet and let us pray.